Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. This episode deals with serious and distressing content. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, this is Beth. While I've got you, if you love how I survived, please rate, review and subscribe. It helps other fans like you find us too. This is not where I expect this to end up. The shattered pelvis in the desert. I might die here and I'm really scared that that's the case. I don't know. I don't know what to do. I can't get a signal out here. Um, I call for help. No one's out here. This is the stupidest thing I've ever done. This is How I Survived. Stories of everyday people and how they survived against the odds. I'm your host, Beth Young. You know, am I going to die or what? I mean, I, I look back at it now and I thought, you know, how did I ever survive that? I think that I probably survived for a reason. How I survived. Driving across California's sprawling Joshua Tree National Park on her way to start a nearly 13-kilometre hike, 35-year-old Kiwi Claire Nelson decided to stop and take a moment to appreciate the desert's beauty. I had actually pulled over to the side of the road just to take in the scenery and this coyote was standing there at the side of the road and crossed the road in front of me and then as I started to drive away it, it kind of trotted alongside the car and I just remember that it was a really nice moment. I love animals and fascinated by wildlife and I just thought that was really neat. The desert was beautiful and peaceful. Everything that frantic London, where Claire had been living for 13 years, was not. A whopping 800,000 acres, the National Park is more than twice the size of Greater London. But within that space, there was nothing but miles of rolling hilly desert and rugged canyons, dotted with mammoth boulders and the almost alien Joshua trees, which give the park its name. I hear a lot of cliches about it, but they're all accurate, so it's hard to avoid them. Like, it is an otherworldly place. The trees look a little bit like Dr. Seuss sketches. You know, it's it, everything's kind of strange and different and not like anywhere else that feels familiar. Claire wasn't even meant to be here. She'd recently moved to Canada and the plan was to spend some time on the road there, exploring and immersing herself in the great outdoors. Then her mate Nat and her husband Lou, who lived in the Californian desert, reached out with an invite to house-sit and watch their cats while they were on holidays. Claire jumped at the chance. She'd been there before and she loved it, especially the hiking. Staying for three weeks in total, she was already halfway through her time there. I think I'd been hiking every day that I was there, even just small hikes, even just like an hour or something. Any chance I could to get out on the trail, 
uh, I would take it. So I was already feeling really comfortable with the terrain. And the heat. Getting close to summer in the Northern Hemisphere, the dry desert temperatures were soaring up to and over 40 degrees Celsius each day. Claire's friends had warned her to be careful. There were stories of hikers who'd got lost in the desert and some who'd even succumbed to the heat and died. And I was thinking, well, yes, but I'm, I'm going to be sensible. I'm not going to go off the trail. I'm, you know, I'm going to be fine. I'm just going to be doing established trails like everybody else. And it's so easy to get caught up in that mindset of thinking this doesn't apply to me or it won't happen to me. We're all guilty of thinking like that. But Claire was prepared. She had five litres of water, split between a hydration pack and two one-litre bottles, snacks, a first-aid kit and a hiking stick that she'd grabbed at the very last moment before heading off. She'd left bright and early that morning and the plan was to knock off the hike in about four hours. Still, once she'd made the one-and-a-half-hour drive across the park to get to the trailhead, she stopped into the visitor centre to chat to a ranger. Like Nat and Lou, he warned her about the extreme heat. But he also just kind of mentioned that there would be some scrambling and a little bit of a climb down to the valley at some point, sort of towards the end of the hike. And I... I just put that in my mind, like, oh, okay, yeah, there'll be a bit of a, you know, a bit of a challenging part where I'm going to do some scrambling, and then thought nothing more of it, and then head off on the trail. Following the trail, it merged with a dried-out riverbed, and Claire kept walking along, completely in her element. But she kept a cautious eye out for rattlesnakes. She was halfway to her destination, the Lost Palms Oasis, which is hidden deep in the valley, when she reached a 3.5-metre-high stack of boulders. And I thought, OK, well, they did mention there was some scrambling, and so I just clambered on up, and I could see the valley below just kind of falling away, and I sort of sat there, and I had broken my water bottle, so I just sort of emptied that while I was sitting there, just having a drink, looking at the view. It was breathtaking, And as Claire drained the last of the liquid from her broken bottle, she wasn't even remotely worried. She wasn't going to die of thirst. She still had plenty of water to see her through until the end of the hike. She'd even thought to leave a bottle in the car for when she got back. And then I figured out, okay, I'm going to have to climb down the other side of this boulder stack. And the easiest route to get down was on the opposite side, so I thought, I'm going to have to cross these boulders and I stretched my foot out, checked, and I had a good sort of foothold on the rock. And then once I put more of my weight into the foothold, my foot started to slip and I realised there really wasn't a foothold there. I started to slide down the, the face of the rock. Claire had put her faith in her balance and her sturdy boots with their high-quality, grippy rubber soles. She'd gotten complacent... And terrifyingly, she realised as she began to slip towards the edge, complacency kills. I'm starting to slide and I'm trying to grab at the rock with my fingers. And I've got my hiking stick in one hand, so I'm trying to sort of stab at the rock with the stick in one hand and then grab it with the other. But it's like everything's going in slow motion. 
but it's also really, really quick. And then my brain sort of gives me a warning, like, you're about to get hurt. And then I go over the edge. I landed in a clearing, surrounded by very high rocks, about 25 feet down. At the moment of impact, I heard my bones break. I felt them break. And it just this pain just shot through my body. And I quickly realized that I'd shattered my pelvis. I could feel the pieces of bone in my hip. If I moved slightly, they would move slightly. Um, I couldn't move. I could sort of wiggle my toes, so I knew I wasn't paralyzed, but any other movement was just out of the question. It was a miracle that Claire hadn't landed on one of the many boulders surrounding her, but in a small clearing. Flat on her back and unable to move, she was now completely hidden from view. I knew I needed to get emergency help, so I grabbed my phone out of my bag, which was next to me, and called 911. And I didn't have any signal. And I realised then, of course, because you can't get any phone signal in the middle of the national park. And so that was a moment of absolute horror of I am in serious trouble and I actually can't tell anybody. And on top of that, it was the crushing realization that I haven't let anybody know my plans. So nobody knows I was coming out here. Claire's fingers shook as she frantically scrolled through her phone, shooting off several texts for help each time the little red exclamation mark screamed out, not delivered. And the emergency SOS function on her mobile also required signal. It was looking really bad. And then I look at the GPS maps and I see where I am on the trail and I'm not on the trail. I'm actually about at least a mile off the trail. So at some point I've come off and gone the wrong way. And that was the last straw for me. I was like, all these things are against me. But now even hoping that someone's gonna just come by while hiking the trail and find me, that's not gonna happen either. So I realized that I could not have been in a worse situation. Cold prickles of horror ran down Claire's neck. She howled again and again for help. But would anyone even hear her screams or would they be lost on the desert breeze? In the sky above her, a lone hawk had already started to circle. And that kind of freaked me out, just watching them go directly above me, round and round. I mean, one of the things I love about going hiking by myself is you just get to feel like you're an animal out in the wilderness, you know. But now I was a wounded animal out in the wilderness. You know, my position in the food chain had dropped substantially. And it wasn't that long ago that she'd spotted that majestic coyote. But earlier, she'd been in the safety of her car. Now, she was vulnerable. I was very aware that coyotes were around. And on top of that, I knew there was a risk of seeing rattlesnakes. I'd been looking out for them on my hike, so I kind of wanted to see one from a safe distance. You know, just being from New Zealand, we don't get snakes. It all seems very exciting. But once I was lying on the floor of the desert, that was the last thing that I wanted to see. When I'd run out of options of things to do to get help and and to call attention to what was going on, all I could think to do was to then record a message. I thought, well, there's a huge chance that I'm not going to get found. 
so I thought I would just leave a video message on my camera. This is not where I expected to end up. The shattered pelvis. scared that that's the case and I don't know I don't know what to do I can't get a signal out here and I call for help and no one's out here this is the stupidest thing I've ever done <sighs> speaking to the camera Claire felt just a tiny bit less alone maybe she could get through this and if she didn't make it out alive at least now there was a chance that her beloved friends and family would know what had happened to her. By now, it was mid-morning, and the oven-like heat pressed down hard. With her pelvis shattered, Claire couldn't move, and it was only going to get worse. And I realised very quickly that the sun was going to be my biggest problem. I didn't have any shade. I couldn't move into any shade. And so I had my, my hat, so I just held it up with one arm like straight up above me, blocking the sun from my, my upper body and my face, because it was the only thing I could do. I couldn't protect my legs, so I had to try and cover my legs with a map of the park that I had in my bag, and then use my hiking stick to apply sunscreen to my legs to the parts where I couldn't reach. I was just trying to do everything I could to stop my skin from burning. Grabbing her first aid kit, she pulled out a Tylenol bottle. There were three painkillers rattling in the bottom. Chugging them down, they didn't even make a dent in the crippling agony. But it was her water supply she was most worried about. She was down to just three litres. As the hours ticked past at an agonisingly slow pace, she took tiny, frequent sips. Claire was parched beyond belief, but she had no idea how long she'd have to make the precious liquid last. Then, horrifyingly, a sudden gust of wind blew, snatching Claire's map, which had been covering her legs. Now they were exposed to the blazing heat. The sun was unbearable, but as it set and darkness cloaked the desert... Claire was gripped with terror. I was absolutely terrified that I would be spending a night out there. As soon as it started to get dark, I knew that if no one was going to come by before, they're definitely not going to come by now. And being flat on your back on the desert floor in, in the middle of the night, you feel so vulnerable. I mean, I was aware I was at snake level, and even though snakes don't come out at night, it doesn't matter. I was so terrified that snakes were coming out of the crevices and the rocks around me. And even though it was really dark, I would sort of squint and my eyes would get sort of used to the darkness. And then I was convinced I was seeing them moving and kind of, you know, winding their way out of the dark crevices and coming towards me. So I would get my iPhone, turn the torch on and shine it. And then there was nothing there. 
This went on for much of the night. The temperature had plummeted too. Dressed in just shorts and a tank top, Claire shivered uncontrollably, her teeth chattering violently. Needless to say, she didn't get much sleep. I was so relieved when the sun came up the next morning. It was a weird mixed feeling of kind of, I can't believe this has happened. At the same time thinking, wow, okay, well, at least the worst is over now. I've spent a night in the desert. This is absolutely insane, but I've survived it. So now we're going to be fine. It's a new day. There's going to be people in the park. You know, this is all going to be over. And I was so uncomfortable as well. I mean, my whole body was so fed up with being in this one position, not being able to move. I sort of felt that really agonizing pressure of feeling my bones pressing to the ground and not being able to roll over. And then as the sun started to get higher and I realized what I was actually in for was another day of that excruciating heat. So I sort of had to brace myself for that. Claire's only hope were her friends Nat and Lou. Even though they were on holidays in Scotland, they knew Claire had planned to go on this hike at some point during her trip. Would they notice her absence and raise the alarm? But she couldn't rely on them. Screaming into the abyss might have seemed fruitless, but she had to try. I felt like I needed to scream for help because it it just gave me some little strand of hope to cling to that if I scream for help and somehow the sound carries at the right time, the right direction, and there's a person there and they hear it, like it was the tiniest little possibility but that was all I had to cling on to and then the screaming for help took a lot out of me it really left my throat sore and dry and it 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 wore me out made me feel a bit dizzy so I had to do it before it got too hot so the morning before the sun came directly over me I would try and do as much of that as I could and then once the sun came over me it was all about keeping myself from burning It is fucking hot. I don't know what temperature it is out here. It must be in the 40s. And I can't get to any shade. I just tried, instead of a sheer moment of fuck the pain again, and I tried to roll myself over into that little shady alcove. Almost got there. Soon as I managed to kind of lever my pelvis over, you hear this click, 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 crunch, 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 and then, noise that came out of me, I swear to God. And then, of course, I had to roll back over and nearly passed out. And I don't want to pass out in the sun or ever. And I'll wake up again. Despite Claire's best efforts to hold her hat up on the end of her hiking stick to block out the sun's rays, it wasn't cutting it. Her arms were killing her. She needed to get creative. And my brain just went into this mode of, okay, what can we do? What have we got? Let's do this. Scanning the clearing, she spotted a thin but reasonably sturdy-looking stick about the length of her arm. Using the hiking stick, Claire dragged it towards her. She pulled the hair tie from her ponytail and used it to bind both sticks together in a T-shape. 
finding a roll of physio tape in her first aid kit, she tore off a strip and wrapped that around the binding to really secure the frame. And then I had a plastic bag in my rucksack that I stretched out across the pieces of stick and then put my hat on the top of that. So I made this bigger shade that I could then hold up much easier over me. My makeshift umbrella. This is basically me for the next six hours now that the sun's coming over me. And uh, legs covered. It's very, very hot. My childhood of growing up in the 80s watching MacGyver had paid off. So it was about 24 hours after I had fallen at this point. Um, I still had all my food. I, I'd eaten the boiled egg, but I wasn't hungry at all. I made myself eat it. But I, I found food a little bit repulsive, actually. It was just this just absolute desperate need for hydration. I was fantasizing about cracking a can of Diet Coke. Like the sound of it, that fizz, the way it sort of burns your tongue because it's so fizzy. On a hot day, that was always like my vice. And I became obsessed with this. I mean, yes, I wanted water, but that became this weird obsession in my mind and I couldn't stop thinking about it. Claire also couldn't stop thinking about the bottle of water she'd left in the car. If only she could go back in time and make a different decision. But that wasn't going to happen. Just like a can of icy cold Diet Coke wasn't going to suddenly materialise out of thin air. She did have one other option, though. The whole time I'd been there so far, I had been collecting my urine because I didn't want to be sort of lying there, you know, just weighing on myself I just thought no it's going to make things worse and also it's going to attract animals so what I was doing was peeing into the little Tylenol bottle um, which was small enough uh, for me to get into the top of my shorts and then tipping that into the empty broken water bottle that I had and so after about 24 hours of being out there my water supplies were running really low and I was very aware of the fact that I was probably going to have to drink urine. Dehydration had left Claire's pee a dark orange colour. It looked disgusting, and no doubt it would taste even worse. But if she could get past the taste and keep it down, it could be a lifesaver. And what I did was decide to have a, a couple of sips of it before the water ran out, because if I physically can't keep this down then I'm screwed. And I found I could, I could keep it down. I mean, it was disgusting, but at least I knew that it would sustain me for a little bit longer. Urine tastes exactly as you think it would taste. It had that kind of musty, warm, kind of cloying taste if you have like a a flat beer that's been sitting out in the sun. The worst part about it is more of the aftertaste. It kind of lingers in the back of your sinuses. Um, it's it's really bitter and unpleasant. And I had um, a vanilla chapstick in my pocket, so I was sort of eating a little bit of that after to take the taste away. If I go through one more hot day like this, I'm, I'm a goner. I, I've got I've 
got no more resources. My kidneys hurt. I'm dehydrated. You know, this is the colour of what I'm drinking. It just kind of says it all, really. It's not how I want to go, I have to say. Really hoping someone finds me. By this point, my phone had died, so I had no way of keeping track of time. It was it was a lot of guesswork, um, and sort of just working out where the sun was at that point. It was I would say about the middle of the day. I was drinking urine, and kind of thinking this is a really serious situation I'm in. And so then, by the afternoon of day two, there were two hawks circling, and it just felt really ominous. I just thought, oh no, they've clocked me. <laughs> figured out there's an injured animal down in the canyon. Over the next couple of hours, Claire battled the baking sun until it began to set. And finally, she was in the shade. It was bittersweet, though. It meant she was sliding towards another night alone in the desert. I started to feel worried that no one was going to notice that I was missing. And... I remember there were a lot of stars that night and I was watching shooting stars and being like, this is really, you know, this is really amazing, but also, this, you know, this is awful at the same time. After another restless night beneath the stars, Claire woke to her third day flat on her back in the desert. The third day, it was the hottest day yet. And I was really struggling with the heat and the dehydration and so I started to hear things. Just waiting for the sun to get off my legs, which is always about an hour after it gets off my face. It was quite a fight with the heat today. I'm not letting it win. But boy, oh boy, I don't wanna to have to do that again tomorrow. Please. In this, in this crazy heat, I keep thinking I'm hearing a helicopter. At one point I thought I heard an ambulance in the distance, but it was all in my head. It's not fair. It wasn't fair. Not at all. Claire's not a crier. She calls herself an emotional vault. But looking into the lens of her camera to record another message, it all became too much. <laughs> this is the first time I've actually cried because I'm getting really freaked out now. And I just think of all of you guys, my friends and my family, and I... I'd do anything to see you guys. <laughs> I don't want to be here. I really don't want to be here. So I should find some hope in the fact I can still I still have tears, so I'm not completely tried up yet. <sighs> There's still hope, there's still hope if I just... 
feeling a little bit freaked out. Claire mightn't be used to crying, but she wasn't going to waste the opportunity. You might have noticed that tiny pause in the video. That was Claire wiping her eyes and trying to drink her tears. Over the day, she'd record more videos, each capturing her rising desperation. about food it's just it's water that I'm worried about it's drink I thought what three days you can go without fuck probably less in the desert when is someone going to come looking for me This heat is trying to get to me. So by the time the third night was sinking in, there was a sort of very eerie calm in the desert. And I was also feeling more accepting of my fate like I think I was reaching this point of well this is going to be it for me and maybe I just need to you know get to grips with that fact and as I was sort of lying there and bracing myself for another night in the cold and the dark I saw something moving in the rocks above me which immediately made me freak out like oh god what what's there around up here in the rocks. I'm hoping they're not bitey bats and that they have no interest in me. Now they, they'd realised I wasn't a threat, so there were kind of the creatures all around me, the desert was starting to kind of stir. And I mean, yes, it was kind of scary, but also I don't know, I just, I remember feeling very calm about it and being fascinated and watching these bats and thinking how lucky I was to be there and and watching them. And, you know, it made me feel sad in a way because it's like, well, gosh, there's so much, you know, so much of the world I still want to see and experience. I, I kind of thought, well, this is going to be it for me and maybe I should just, you know, appreciate where I am while I have it. In that moment, Claire began to realise that if she did die out here, of all the places where her bones could rest, it wasn't too bad. Out in nature, where she was her happiest. Accepting her fate, she closed her eyes with the knowledge that she might never open them again. But she did. She'd survived a third night. But with just half a bottle of pee left to drink and little chance of making any more, how on earth could she survive a fourth? At this point, everything on my body is aching, like just the pressure of being in one position 
for now four days, I didn't have as much strength to hold the sunshade up, so I just sort of laid it down and draped it on top of me. I just couldn't keep holding it up. And I didn't know at that point whether I would have another 24 hours in me. Uh, the idea of it at the time just felt completely implausible. Turning her camera on, Claire looked into the lens. Her face was sunken, her dry, parched lips painfully cracked. She told her friends and family she loved them. Then the battery finally ran out, cutting her off. Like that, her last connection to the outside world was gone. Now she had no fight left in her. And I was kind of starting to just drift in and out of consciousness. And I was having these really vivid sort of daydreams about me as a child and just kind of being really thirsty and like being summer and it being really hot. And so I was just, I wasn't even very present at this point. But then this voice comes out of nowhere and I just hear the words fucking coyote and coyote. But really clear as if someone had just said them like right next to me. I was so confused and I thought, is my brain just messing with me? But it sort of snapped me back into consciousness and I kind of came back to the room, so to speak, and I was listening and then I realised that there was a helicopter. And for a moment I thought, ah, I'm definitely hearing things again. But it wasn't, it really was a helicopter. And I was like, oh my God. She had no idea, but Nat and Lou had noticed how quiet Claire had been on Instagram and couldn't let it go. Usually when Claire travelled, she'd take plenty of snaps and upload them to her social media. Texting again and again, of course they didn't hear a peep. So they'd sent friends around to their house to check on her. Finding it empty, the car gone, and Claire's handwritten calendar, which read Tuesday, Lost Palms Oasis. Finally, the alarm had been raised. Up in the air in a rescue helicopter, pilots Eric Bashta and Manny Romero were on the lookout for Claire. As we were flying around, we searched some of the common trails, uh, made a lot of announcements over our PA system that if Claire could hear us, uh, if she could make any type of movement. And then the same voice came again, and they, I heard them say, we're looking for a missing hiker. And I was, oh my God, I have to get their attention. I, I wasn't even sure it was me. I thought maybe they were looking for another hiker, like, but maybe they can also find me while they're out here. <laughs> and so I, I started to scream and wave my sunshade. I couldn't see where the helicopter was. I could only hear it. And then I heard it get quieter and quieter and quieter. And then it was gone. And so I, I remember just kind of begging to the powers that be that they would come back. And I have no idea how long it was because it was so hard to gauge time, especially with the emotions I was feeling. But after a while, I heard them come back. And then I heard them say my name, which was just incredible. And again, I'm screaming and waving this thing. And I sort of caught a glimpse of the helicopter in between the far cliffs on the horizon. And I thought, no, gosh, they can't see me. Like, they're in the wrong place. 
but I'm screaming and I'm waving this thing and then again the helicopter gets quieter and it's gone and I just thought I've missed my chance. My heart I remember was just like pounding like I, I don't know what I'm going to do now. Tugging the plastic bag off her sunshade, Claire hung her t-shirt on it like a flag, then stretched the white grocery bag across it again to make it as big a target as she could. With her last bit of strength, she held it up as high as it would go, waving it like a mad woman. And at the bottom of that stick was Claire Nelson waving at us. What I would describe as, as a floating bag is what it looked like to me. So I heard the helicopter again, and they came over, and I still couldn't see them, but this time they saw me. And I heard them say the words, we see you, we're gonna come and get you. And I'll never forget those words there, burned into my brain. I just knew at that point, I'd gone from thinking that was it, I was gonna die, to realizing that actually I'm not gonna die. And I actually went into shock, I think, at that point. Claire wouldn't have to spend a fourth night in the desert. Amazingly, she was saved. By the time these two guys managed to clamber their way down into the canyon, I'm ecstatic. Like, I'm making jokes with them. I'm pretty much hysterical, <laughs> like laughing. I just couldn't believe it. And these two guys couldn't believe it. They, these guys are out searching for people all the time. And they said they were expecting to find a body. So the fact that they had arrived and found this kind of jokey hiker, um, they, they were just blown away. Um, so we were all in this kind of weird state of like, what is happening right now? <laughs> it was a really lovely moment. Like we were all just ecstatic. And Manny and Eric had come bearing gifts. Water, which Claire gratefully guzzled. Never had she tasted something so divine. And then one of them, Manny, he said, oh, you know, we actually have a board in our office of the people we find alive because it reminds us why we do this. We use it to keep our spirits up and keep us motivated. He said, you know, it'd be really great at some point to get a photo with you for the wall. And I remember saying like, yeah, but just not right now. Like this really isn't, you know, much of like a Tinder style photo opportunity. And they were just howling. They were like, we can't believe you're making jokes right now. And I was like, you don't, you don't understand. Like I've never been happier. Never in my life have I felt as happy as I do right now. It's the best day of my life. Race to hospital, Claire needed surgery to fuse her shattered pelvis back together. She'd also broken her foot and sprained an ankle, and the patches of skin she wasn't able to cover had been scorched by the sun. She'd be in a wheelchair for the next three months, so her lovely mum flew to the US to bring her back to New Zealand to recover. Um, but I was, I was itching to get back onto that hiking trail and finish it, and that became a really big motivator for me. So I just knew that I had to heal properly and sensibly, but I was also really keen to go as soon as I was able to. Claire fell over the edge of that cliff in May. By the following January, she wasn't only back on her feet, she was in the US pulling on her hiking boots and getting ready to conquer the trail where she had very nearly died. I don't think my family was that stoked about it, but they also knew that there was no stopping me. 
Um, I, it was something I had to do for myself as well to get some closure. There is no way I would have been allowed to go and do that on my own. So um, yeah, I had friends come with me this time. There were four of us. We all did this hike together. And when we reached the point that I had meant to get to, which was this oasis of palms that's hidden down in this valley. And we came over the top of the, of the rise and looked down into the valley and saw those palm trees. And we all just stood there and stared. And I remember thinking like, I don't know if it was always gonna be this magical, but it, it's sure as shit magical this time. Like this feels more magnificent given how it could have ended up. Like it just really hit home for me. Being holed up, flat on your back, in the desert, on the brink of death, gives you a lot of time to think. Claire's even written a book about her experience called Things I Learned From Falling. These are the two main lessons she's learned. The, the most profound change for me has been in recognising fear and how much it was holding me back, whether that's anxiety or whether it's anger, frustration, the fear of missing out, or you know, the fear of failure, all this stuff. And having been lying out there and looking back at my life thinking, gosh, you know, I really wish I hadn't been so afraid all the time. I still feel those fears. I mean, that's just part of being a human being. I now know that I get to control them and not the other way around. And I always thought that to be strong and successful, I had to be really independent and completely reliant on myself. But what I'm realizing now is that having needs and admitting to those needs and also asking for help, it doesn't take away from my strength. It actually adds to it. It actually takes strength to do those things. I started saying to Claire that I wouldn't have thought of half the things she did to survive as long as she did out there. And then I stopped myself. Maybe I would. Maybe you would too, if you had no other option. So many people say to me, oh, I, I wouldn't have thought of that. I would have died out there. And I, I don't know. I, I always say to people, you don't know what you're going to do in that situation because we're designed to keep ourselves alive. And I just think because on our daily lives, we're not, we don't need to rely on our survival instinct in quite that same way. So I think people underestimate themselves and I think they would, you know, quite surprise themselves in that situation. Be that as it may, without the hiking stick, Claire would have faced a much tougher battle. Unable to move, it helped her to drag the things she needed close to her and it gave her the ability to protect herself from the sun. And to think, she very nearly left it at home. I almost left without it, but something made me think, no, hang on a minute, and I went back inside and grabbed it. If I hadn't gone back for the stick, um, I don't know that I would have made it out of the desert. It's a really weird, almost scary thought that so much could be riding on something so, so minuscule. For Claire, the hiking stick is like a talisman. She's living back in London now and she's taken it with her. It can't hurt to keep it close. I've got my hiking stick right here next to me. You know, I can't not have it in my uh, in my possession anymore. It's it's got some sort of magic power, I'm sure of it. This will be our last episode for season four, and thanks to you all, we've also just hit a whopping one million downloads. 
We are so proud and we can't wait to bring you more incredible stories of survival soon. We're thinking of you all during these difficult times and hope you're all staying safe. But like all of our courageous, inspiring survivors, I know we'll get through this. If you feel you've been affected by any of the topics in this week's episode, help and support is available by calling Lifeline on 13 11 14 or lifeline.org.au or Beyond Blue on 1300 22 46 36 or beyondblue.org.au. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe so you don't miss more incredible stories of survival. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review. It really helps. And we'd love it if you could find our Facebook group, How I Survived, and we're on Twitter, at SurvivedPod. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinarian developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.